Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. This is episode 16, Speaking Frankly. The floodgates have opened, and the puns cannot be stopped. Kyrie eleison. We've arrived at the last of the barbarian nations that will carry us through to the fatal date, the Franks. Out of all the people we've talked about up to this point, the Franks would ultimately be the most successful, and of course it's because of them that we call France France, and not Gaul. As before, I'll start with origins, talk about early history and their relationship with the Romans, and introduce their particular way of making war. In addition, I've been thinking about historiography quite a bit lately, and the Franks give me an opportunity to squeeze some discussion of that thorny problem into the podcast, because their importance has led to some very contentious and long-standing arguments about their place in the national consciousnesses of both France and Germany. So my plan is to finish this episode with some discussion of that historiography. You're welcome. Or I'm sorry. Delete as applicable. So, on to business. Long ago, and far away, a great city labored under siege. The citizens endured the siege for ten years, and eventually it fell to the attackers by deception. Many were killed in the aftermath. The proud city burned, its impenetrable walls were pulled down, but some survived and fled, led by a prince named Phrygia and his sons, Priam and Antenor. Eventually they led their people to Pannonia, where they founded a city among the barbarians called Sicambria. Only a few years only a few years later, they were well established enough to render aid to the Roman Emperor Valentinian in his fight against the Alans, and in his gratitude, he bestowed on them a new name Franks, from an Attic word meaning fierce. Ten years later, Valentinian sent them tax collectors, which was a mistake. The Franks killed them, and the Romans sent legions against them. The senior prince Priam was killed in the fighting, and the other Franks abandoned Pannonia and settled on the furthest banks of the Rhine, far from the interference of Rome. There they elected Priam's grandson, named Pharamund, as their new king, and he would be the progenitor of a mighty line of rulers who would soon rule all of Gaul and give it their name, France, obviously. Wild, isn't it? It isn't true, of course, though some French though some French schoolchildren would be memorizing regnal lists beginning with Priam as late as the 1700s. That origin story was written down by an anonymous author of a chronicle called the Liber Historiae Francorum, the book of the history of the Franks, in the 8th century. He was improvising freely on a theme, apparently unconstrained by any kind of deep knowledge of Virgil or Homer, but he was not the first historian to tie the Franks to the Trojans. He was following the lead of earlier writers. The first to make the connection was a bishop named Fridigar in the 7th century. But why would he do that? The Trojans lost that war, after all. Well, because history is not always the unbiased search for truth, statistics, and tenure that it is now. <clears throat> it has been, on the one hand, a literary exercise with aristocratic authors training to show their mastery of the classics to each other, or increasingly, an exercise in myth-making. It was well known by just about anyone who could read that the Romans traced their ancestry from Romulus and Remus back to Prince Aeneas, the nephew of King Priam of Troy. It was all there in Virgil, and Virgil couldn't be wrong. 
Placing their own kings in the same bloodline implied Frankish equality with the Romans. Indeed, in the 7th century it was proposed, rather oddly, that the Franks were superior to the Romans because they were Christians. Quote, this is the people who rejected with force the heavy yoke that the Romans had imposed on them, and having received baptism covered with gold and precious stones the bodies of the holy martyrs whom the Romans had burnt or beheaded or had torn apart by wild animals. I imagine that Theodosius the Great would have had some words for this interpretation of events. It is especially ironic, since there seems to be some evidence that the Franks came to Christianity late compared to the other German tribes. Clearly, the Franks' own historians were confounded by their origins, and by the general timeline of world history. But we shouldn't be too hard on them. Of all of the people that have done time on this podcast, the Franks' Genesis story is the most obscure. Neither Tacitus or Pliny, who are usual early Roman sources for German tribes, mention them at all, and indeed they don't appear in any Roman sources until 289. The earliest and most important chronicler of Frankish history, Gregory of Tours, deals with their origins with a shrug and a many people say that they came from Pannonia, which is far from definitive. We will deal much more with Gregory in future episodes, I can tell you. It is clear from the Roman sources that the Franks were actually another confederation of tribes that coalesced in response to population growth and the political chaos unleashed by the Marcomannic Wars, which I've mentioned before. Tribes like the Chauci, the Salians, the Chamavi, the Bructeri are all mentioned at different times as Frankish tribes. Their territory was generally along the Lower Rhine, from the North Sea coast down to about the River Main. Broadly, that's the modern Netherlands and part of Germany. South of that, another Germanic confederation, the Alamans, were dominant. Between the two of them, these West Germanic tribes were responsible for a fair portion of pain during the Roman crisis of the 3rd century, raiding deep into Gaul at around the same time the Goths were making themselves known in the East. Evidence of upheaval can be seen in coin hordes, where people under threat buried their precious metals to keep them out of the hands of attackers, and then were unable to return to them for whatever reason. Across Gaul, more than 200 such hordes can be dated to the 270s. And it wasn't just land raids across the Rhine, either. Franks and their neighbors, the Saxons, took to the sea as well, launching seaborne raids along both sides of the English Channel and up the rivers. Writing about a hundred years later, the historian Aurelius Victor claimed that some Frankish bands reached Spain and took ships from there to establish bases in Africa, one of which they occupied for twelve years. Just like the Goths, the Franks were far from a single political entity. If anything, they seem more loosely associated than the Goths were. It may actually be more accurate to describe the Franks as a loose ethnic group than a political confederation. In my ma- In my mind, it seems possible the term was applied by the Romans first, and then adopted by the Franks themselves after the fact. That's just idle speculation on my part, though, and entirely unprovable. Tribes were all perfectly happy to fight against fellow Franks on behalf of the Romans, if it seemed to be in their interest, and that same band might be attacking Roman towns the very next year. Some of these raids may have had purely mercenary motivations, others may have been part of a working out of intertribal rivalries. Speaking of mercenaries, those that served the Romans well would need to be rewarded, and so once again we find land being granted to outsiders to settle and to work. The Frankish troops thus settled are often referred to with a new word, laity. It's not clear what it means exactly. 
It never appears in the eastern half of the empire and only shows up in the west in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Some scholars suggest that laity were Germanic POWs that were resettled on imperial lands. Others that they are similar to the Federate troops that we are already familiar with, just with a different name. Archaeologists have identified several settlements in northern France, mostly in the basin of the Seine, that may be those of Frankish laity and their families. There are cemeteries dating to Roman times where the men are buried with weapons. Romans were not generally buried with weapons, because ordinary citizens were forbidden from bearing arms, and soldiers didn't own their own kit. So these might possibly, perhaps, be Frankish graves. More convincingly, the women's graves in those same cemeteries contain clearly Germanic jewelry, especially a design specifically associated with the Franks and Saxons called a tutelus brooch. If you'll allow me a digression on the subject of tutelus brooches, I cannot work out how they would have been comfortable. I'll put an image on the website and in the show notes, but to describe them, they're conical brooches, or fibulae, to use the more correct term, which is basically just a safety pin, with a pin on the bottom of the cone. Two would be worn, one on each shoulder. They're actually named after a Roman hairstyle, where a woman's hair would be pulled up into a high but loose bun, which gave the rest of her hair and head a conical shape. Some of these brooches are amazingly tall, which is where my confusion comes in. How do you wear such a thing on the shoulders without stabbing yourself in the ear every time you wobble your head? If anybody has any idea about that, I would love to hear it. Anyway, conflicts continued, and more and more Franks found their way into Roman service, many of them under Constantine in the early 300s. Like other German soldiers, some reached high office. By the end of the century, Romanized Franks were deeply embedded in the Roman state hierarchy. One Frank named Bauto was Magister Militum in the West, and made consul in 380, and his daughter married the Emperor Arcadius, and was the mother of Theodosius II and his remarkable sisters. Centuries later, a Byzantine historian remarked that no emperor could marry a German, unless she was a Frank. But eventually, it was all pushed too far. You might remember, but probably don't, that at the Battle of the Frigidus, a young Alaric the Goth saw his people's lives wasted in battle against a Frankish general named Arbogast. When Arbogast lost that battle, and Theodosius I became sole emperor, Frankish power inside the empire diminished. Their political influence may have abated, but their settlements remained on both sides of the frontier. I am, from here on out, going to refer to Franks on the German side of the Rhine as riparian Franks, just to avoid as much confusion as possible. The 4th century seems to have been fairly peaceful along the Rhine, all things being relative, of course. Around 358, after campaigning to recover some territory around Cologne, peace was made with the Salii, or Salian Franks, who settled down on the Roman side of the river and lived apparently in quiet obscurity. A raiding party of riparian Franks arrived around the time of the Battle of Adrianople, crossed into Gaul and ravaged the countryside before being cornered by the Romans in the Silva Carbonaria and driven back into their homelands. The two generals involved argued about whether to follow them, and the one who did lost almost all of his army in the forests and marshes of the German bank. The Rhine remained the edge of the Roman world, both physically and, more importantly, psychologically. The riparian Franks seemed to have sat out the great invasion by the Vandals, Alans, and Swaves between 406 and 408, and the Salian Franks probably fought against them as Roman auxiliaries. 
We've been over the chaotic 5th century in Gaul already a couple of times, so I'll just sum it up with a quote from Edward James, whose book on the Franks has been my companion this last week or two. Various Roman usurpers used different groups of barbarians against legitimate authorities, and those fighting for the legitimate authorities also used barbarian support. At times, it must have been as difficult for the barbarians involved to have known whether they were fighting for or against the empire as it is for modern historians. End quote. You said it. And so, like an ex-lover, who we know is no good for us, but there's just something about them, we return to Flavius Aetius. In amongst all the other fighting in Gaul he was responsible for, he may have campaigned against Frankish raiders around 440, and then made some deals with them, especially with the Salians, who seemed to have effectively taken over defense of the Lower Rhine. The move of the imperial center from Trier to Arles may be part of those arrangements, but this period of Frankish and, indeed, Roman history is even more tangled and confused than anything that's come before. Aetius fought the Salians at Arras, for reasons unknown, and then they fought for him against Attila in the very next year, at the Catalonian fields. I have to assume that Aetius had devised some kind of system, like maybe he kept a color-coded list of every barbarian leader he knew, so that he could keep track of who he was friends with on any given Sunday. We also meet again, slightly more enthusiastically, another friend, Sidonius Apollinaris, who gives us the very first physical description of the Franks. Quote, Their eyes are faint and pale, with a glimmer of grayish-blue. Their faces are shaven all round, and instead of beards, they have thin mustaches which they run through with a comb. Close-fitting garments confine the long limbs of the men. They are drawn up high to expose the knees, and a broad belt supports their narrow waist. It is their sport to send axes hurtling through the vast void, and know beforehand where the blow will fall, to whirl their shields, to outstrip with leaps and bounds the spears they have hurled, and reach the enemy first. Even in boyhood's years, the love of fighting is full-grown. Those throwing axes that Sidonius mentioned are seen as the Frank's signature weapon, certainly in the Roman period. Named the Francisca in their honor, these would have been utterly terrifying to come across in battle. Single-handed and relatively short, they were deeply curved on the underside of the blade, and balanced specifically as a missile weapon. These would be deployed with great skill at close range, just before hand-to-hand -hand combat was joined. Now, on my birthday a few years ago, I was taken to an axe bar in Milwaukee. This is not a bar that offers foul-smelling body sprays for men. It is a bar where you can drink and throw axes at boards with targets on them. I am, it turns out, not bad at this activity, especially the first part. On the evening we were there, a few lanes over, was a well-built young man who was clearly very enamored of his own physical power, who hurled his axe so hard it overcame any need for actual skill, except for when it didn't, and the thing came bouncing back at him and his friends. They were largely unfazed by this. When I imagined a Frankish warrior and his Francisca, then, I imagined that meathead's power combined with the skill of someone who actually knows what they're doing, and I shudder to think of what it would have been like on the receiving end of such a bombardment. That Frankish warrior probably could have drunk both of us under the table, too. The Franciscas were paired with a long-pointed javelin, 
descended from the Roman pilum and used to try and neutralize enemy shields. And for the more aristocratic fighter, the longsword, patterned on the Roman spatha and called by the Franks a logans. The sidearm of most Frankish fighters, though, would have been the 18-inch single-edged scramasax, the blade of machete-like sturdiness and utility, along with a shield, which were commonly oval or rectangular. The early Franks fought on foot, and in later engagements the Francisca proved a powerful enough advantage to defeat mounted Visigothic lancers. The impression, overall, is of a fairly wild people, less Romanized than their East German cousins, or to put it more accurately, more inclined to cling to their own Germanic customs, while absorbing Roman influences at the same time. Many Franks were still pagans, especially as you move further into the German interior, though there were Aryan Christian Franks as well. It's not really too surprising that the West Germans were a little less Roman than the other Germans we've talked about, in spite of their long and direct contact. The Frankish and Alemannic tribes had been settled where they were for many generations, and so could afford to be attached to their traditions, as opposed to the nomadic lifestyle forced on the Visigoths and Vandals, which I can only assume must have been a life of compromises. There was cultural bleed-through, though, as there was everywhere else. I've talked before about Germanic dress like wool trousers, which had become so ubiquitous in the army that German clothes and military clothes had become almost synonymous. A Germanic style of jewelry worked its way into northern Gaul as gold and garnet fibulae became popular and, again, nearly ubiquitous among army officers. These jewels are really lovely, by the way, and from these early beginnings their design would become a nearly pan-European style for several centuries, with local variations, of course. I'll try and find some good pictures. Roman coins found their way across the borders, too, as trade was constant. Some of those coins were then worked into jewelry in styles that wouldn't look too out of place on Etsy today. The best demonstration of this mixing of German and Gallo-Roman culture, and of the skill of the craftsmen of the time, is the treasure of Kilderic. I'll talk about the life of Kilderic and his more famous son Clovis in the next episode, but for now, he was a Frankish king who died in 481 or 482, and his grave was found at Tournai in 1653. It remains the only Frankish grave that can be precisely dated and matched to events in written history. 1653 was early days for antiquarianism, of course, and so the find wasn't recorded with the kind of rigor we might like, but it was recorded and published. The discovery was made by a deaf stonemason named Adrien Quincon and recorded by Jacques Chiflet, a physician and antiquarian employed by the Habsburg Archduke of Austria in whose territory Tournai was at the time. The find was essentially a collection of objects by the time Chiflet got there, and he had to depend on Quincon's description of the site for context. Some of the items were almost certainly gathered from other nearby grave sites to make the hall larger, and some other items probably were pocketed before it all was turned over to the authorities. But the treasure was both impressive and revealing nonetheless. Chiflet published his description along with engravings of many of the pieces two years later in 1655. Among other things, the grave contained a Francisca, gold fittings for both a scramasax and a sword, the iron and wood parts having corroded away, a gold cloak pin or badge of a kind worn by Roman military officers, gold armbands, many gold and garnet buckles and belt fittings, a ring, and famously, 
around 300 gold and garnet insects that are most often interpreted as bees, but might also be flies or cicadas. The bees were taken by Napoleon as symbols of ancient French royalty, and he adopted them as his own badge to replace the fleur-de-lis, as did Napoleon III later in the 19th century. The grave contained several coins as well, including one minted under the reign of Alexander the Great. The most important part of the find, though, was probably that ring. It was a signet ring, which implies the use of written documents in the administration of Kildaric's lands, and it was inscribed with the words, Kildarici Regis, this belongs to King Kildaric, which in the absence of a headstone is about the best archaeological evidence you could get for the identity of a grave's occupant. It depicts a long-haired, clearly Germanic king, though wearing Roman dress and bearing a spear. It blends seamlessly the tribal authority of the Frankish leader and the administrative and military might of the Roman leader in one object. The sharp-eared of you will have noticed I'm talking about this remarkable treasure in the past tense. Indeed I am, alas. It was initially shipped to the Habsburg court in Vienna, and then later given as a gift to Louis XIV, who was not impressed. I wonder if it was the treasure itself or his feelings about the Habsburgs in general that led him to turn up his nose. Either way, he shipped it off to be stored in the Royal Library. It survived the revolution, but in November of 1831, thieves broke into what was now the National Library of France and stole the treasure, along with a number of other gold objects. Most of it was melted down. Some belt and scabbard fittings and two of the bees were dredged up from the Seine, and a plaster cast of the ring had been made which allowed for its reconstruction, but the rest was lost. What remains is still kept at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, but I regret to say I was unable to find out whether or not they are on public display. There are plenty of images online, though, and I will post links. Mentioning Napoleon gives me an excuse to segue back over to the discussion of historiography that I threatened at the beginning. So let me now so seg. And also let me offer an apology to my French listeners, both of you. This is a fairly complicated issue, and I'm going to be generalizing wildly, and with all generalizations there will be nuances left out, I'm sure. If I say anything deeply offensive or just plain wrong, do not hesitate to get in touch. I would love to hear from you on this. I also apologize for my French pronunciations. I do try my best. And all of that goes for my German listeners, too. Whenever you decide to exist. The relationship between the Franks and the French has been, shall we say, fraught. But surely, you say as you drive along, the French are Franks, and that's that. But the question of how the Franks became French is more contentious than you'd think. It surprised me, anyway. There is the puzzle of language, for starters. French is obviously most directly descended from Latin, which I'm sure most of us already knew. Frankish, meanwhile, is very obviously a Germanic language, and while there are some Frankish words to be found in modern French, the bulk of the language is resolutely Romance. This fact rather flies in the face of the old idea that the Franks simply exterminated all the Romans they found in their territory and replaced them, and then went ahead and learned the Romans' language anyway. As early as the 9th century, there were historians who tried to solve the problem by ignoring it. Richard of Reims, there it is, the most unpronounceable city in France, Richard of Reims refers to Clovis as the first Christian king of the Gauls. 
This idea that the Gauls were the real ancestors of the French nation and the Franks had nothing to do with it was summed up simply by the phrase nos ancêtres les Gallois, first used in the 16th century. The idea contained an implication that the Frankish influence on society and politics was an alien invader, an overlay that never assimilated and had no legitimate right to overlordship of the people of Gaul. There was the theory that the Frankish Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties were foreign usurpers, and the correct Gallic line of succession was restored by Hugh Capet in 987, to continue on until the fall of the monarchy in 1848. By the 17th century, a time of massive religious and political conflict in Europe, including but not limited to the Thirty Years' War, it was also starting to be noticed by some that the Franks were actually Germans. Like many historical debates, <laughs> 1619 project, the debate around the role of the Franks in French history has more to do with contemporary politics than any search for historical truth. From the late 16th century onward, the Franks were pulled into discussions of the constitutional makeup of the state. Some argued that in replacing Roman rule, the Franks had introduced something freer and more participatory which was then snatched away by the increasingly authoritarian Capetians, Valois, and Bourbon. On the other, more royalist side, the Franks were seen as the aristocratic element of society, who gave the French their martial prowess and their nobility. And that was certainly the view of the Bourbon. This was not just scholarly tittle-tattle, by the way. Nicolas Ferret argued in 1714 that the Franks were not descended from the Trojans, but were just another bunch of German barbarians, and he wound up in the Bastille for several months. Some revolutionaries took up this identification of the Franks with the nobility and spun it the opposite direction, that these were foreign overlays on the noble Gallo-Roman society of earlier ages. The Abbe C.S. wrote that those who, quote, persisted in the foolhardy pretense of being descended from the race of the conquerors ought to be sent back to the German forests, end quote. I debated doing a French accent there. I think I made the right choice. He was not a fan of the Franks then. This all had the unattractive potential to turn the French Revolution into a race war. Quote, the Gauls are driving out the Franks, wrote Catherine the Great. Things didn't really get any better in the 19th century, as the science of race became more and more prominent on both sides of the Rhine. I hope you could hear the big, chunky, my first air quotes from play school around the word science in that sentence. Linguists posited the idea of the Aryan race, and we all know how that ended up. It wasn't a purely German phenomenon, as many of us would like to think. Skull shape became an issue, as the long-skulled Franks could now be seen as definitively different from the round-skulled Gauls, and so the debate became, which ones were Aryans? It became much more bitter after the Franco-Prussian War. That same war intensified the desire to distance France from those Germanic Franks and to glorify the Celtic civilization of Gaul, so you will find quite a few more statues of Vercingetorix around France than you will of Clovis and I understand the issue, can still be provocative to this day. I've spent so much time on this because it's a discussion that can be applied to just about all of the tribes and peoples that I've talked about on this podcast and that we will continue to talk about. Plenty of modern nations trace their origins back to the 5th and 6th century migrations, and discussions of that history can lead in some surprisingly vitriolic directions. A lot of it has to do with nationalist impulses of the 18th and 19th centuries as countries sought to 
identify themselves as social and cultural units rather than chunks of feudal territory. So, some French will argue about Gauls versus Franks, some Germans will insist on the unity and liberty of the Germanic tribes, some Hungarians will claim Attila as their ancestor. In later episodes, the English will claim parliamentary patrimony from the Anglo-Saxons, and the Russians and Bulgarians will argue about who bears the true heritage of the Slavs. 19th and early 20th century nationalism makes the study of the early Middle Ages an exercise in clearing away all kinds of baggage. In reality, of course, it's all way more complicated than any of that, as I hope I've made clear. New groups migrate and settle, but certainly never in massive waves that could hope to completely replace existing populations. Instead, in most places, a process of acculturation takes place, as populations intermarry, as the new arrivals demonstrate their ability to provide for the needs of the locals better than the old Roman overlords. That's not to say that it was an entirely peaceful process, and that there wasn't violence. Of course there was violence. Or that the new arrivals were accepted with any kind of democratic consent. Dennis had not yet made his proclamations about anarcho-syndicalist communes. As often as not, for the common people, the new ruler's authority was enforced the same way the old ruler's authority had been, at the point of a sword or in the loop of the noose. But the notion of genocidal waves of newcomers is dead in the water, and I think that makes studying this period much more interesting and less depressing than it otherwise might be. Obviously, I didn't manage to get this episode out quite as quickly as I had promised, and apologies for that. I'm always reading about the importance of consistency of posting, and so I tend to beat myself up when I miss these self-imposed deadlines, but, you know, life intervenes. I will try to keep the gap between episodes to a maximum of two weeks. I think experience at this point has taught us that I shouldn't commit myself to anything more specific than that. Next time, we will continue talking about the Franks and get into some specifics about Hilderic and his son Clovis and their relationship to the Empire and their relationship with crockery. Shoutouts this time to Big Al G, and someone who calls themselves Lame, followed by many H's, which I do not know how to pronounce, but who both left reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your kind words. Al's mention of pacing made me chuckle, since I had been worrying about that very subject aloud to my family. Spooky. I have been remiss the last couple of weeks in reminding everyone that there is a Dark Ages website. It's darkagespod.com, where you can listen to episodes, see my sources, look at maps for things, and now you can read the episodes if you prefer, as I am now posting the transcripts in the episode posts as little articles, basically. So come and take a look. I put relevant images on Instagram, at darkagespod, as well as the website, where I suspect there may be quite a bit of activity this week, as there are plenty of images to be had. Facebook remains an option and a bit of a mystery. Uh, just search for Dark Ages Podcast and follow for the page. I swear I will eventually learn what to do with the Facebook page. I am still on Twitter, at Dark Ages Pod, and we'll just have to wait and see how things go over there. I believe that is everything for this time. Okay, I believe that is everything for this time, Come back soon for the Franks Part 2, which I promise I will not give a punny title, unless I think of a really good one. Until then, take care.